Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Terry Talks Fiction. I've been thinking a lot lately about the way that authors build imaginary worlds, and how the everyday things from authors' lives impact the way that things are present, and also how things are absent in those worlds. For instance, I recently read and reviewed a science fiction novel which, amongst other things, used an unfamiliar way of telling the time as part of its futuristic setting. Since the story takes place in a universe with multiple occupied planets and asteroids, each of which have different orbital and rotational velocities around their suns, the society has used a standardised system for telling the time across each of these places. This is expressed in units, rather than hours or minutes. So far, so good. However, once you've been reading that book for a chapter or two, the constant barrage of words with units appended to them really start to pile up. Year units, month units, hour units, minute units, and second units are all present. They'll be coming around that corner any second unit, a character might cry, while the other shouts back, hold them off, I only need a few more minute units to complete the hack. On the surface, the use of units seems like a great idea, It's consistent with the imaginary universe, and it's a sensible approach to the problem of communicating across worlds and star systems. But it doesn't seem real, and it seems less real every time those words come up. The number of, well, times that we express length of time in our daily conversations had never been so visible to me as when I was reading this book. And I think that's the key issue. Whilst it was a faultlessly consistent and creative element of the imagined world, it took something that's inherently invisible to the reader in their day-to-day life and made it incredibly visible. And that's fine enough when the thing that you're highlighting that way, say for instance culturally ingrained racism or sexism, is a major thematic component of the story. But it doesn't work when it's a background element of your world. People are, linguistically speaking, incredibly lazy. We abbreviate and shortcut everything. And for the specific example of time, whilst we all share the same length of these units, we already live in a world with separate time zones and people communicating across these barriers every day. But if someone asked us the time, we wouldn't answer, oh, it's 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. That would just seem weird even if we were actively talking to someone we knew was on the other side of the world, we're much more likely to answer, that's 11 o'clock. Why? What time is it for you? Another less prominent example from that same book is the presence of synthetic foods as well as the real stuff. Now this was perfectly done as a background element, right up until one section, which I'm going to quote directly. Thurgood said, I highly recommend the Sinboeuf Bourguignon and a glass of Sinnoir Vin. Also, the Sinbone Marrow with garlic toast is exquisite, so let's start with that. Like with the time units, when I read that passage, the use of the term sin for synthetic 
suddenly became visible to me, whereas the less clustered occurrences throughout the previous chapters had been more or less invisible. Setting is important in a fantasy world, and keeping that setting consistent is even more important, but it can't be at the expense of an easy reading experience. Sometimes those inventive elements of your setting need to be mitigated in order to help the reader connect with the world, such as with the character's use of language. Having the good Captain Thurgood simply list the ingredients as beef bourguignon, a glass of noir and a bone marrow with garlic toast, then giving a shrug and adding, it's all synthetic of course, but it's excellent, still maintains the sense of the world without the language becoming a barrier to the reader. And in a similar way, the simple use of normal time increments, with the occasional reminder of the standardised system during a specific interplanetary or ship-to-ground communication, would go a long way in camping that element of the world-building both wondrous and invisible. As we often say in Terry Talks Fiction, using our archaeology bent, context is everything. For the writers out there, I'd like you to think about what you're adding in or changing that might be highlighting itself to the reader when you're building your world. Always remember that if it's not supposed to be the focus of the piece, then making that element stand out every time might not quite give us the impact you're hoping that it will. And now, speaking of taking elements from our own world and transplanting them into our fiction, I'm going to kick us over to an interview I had with author Chris Rosser, who specialises in historical fantasies, taking elements from humanity's true history and playing with them in a new setting. I really enjoyed this interview, and I'm sure you will too. So I'm here today with Chris Rosser, author of the novellas Caddick's Contract and The Weaver's Boy. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a delight. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you come to writing and what's the kind of fiction that you like to write uh, in Caddick's Contract, The Weaver's Boy and your upcoming novel? Wow. Okay. <laughs> a lot of how long do you have sort of thing? I've um, I've been writing oh, since I was a teenager in it's been a passion that's been with me for a very, very long time. So I, I work as a, a technical writer and I have done for the last 15 years, both uh, here and in the UK. My genre of choice is fantasy. That's what I love. That's what I, uh, what I write. Um, I've been doing it now for, as I said, a long time, but uh, those two novels and novellas are relatively new and I published my first one uh, middle of last year and uh, my second one earlier on this year. Very cool. What kind of uh, writing is involved with being a technical writer? Is that a bit of a creative outlet as well or is it as it sounds a bit more straight down the line, a bit more sort of factual, not a lot of room for creativity? It's non-fiction. It's writing manuals and release notes and training material and um, I spent far too much time in my life writing responses to tender and that sort of thing. So I've worked for engineering companies. I currently work for one of the world's largest uh, financial technology companies, a few of the banks here in Australia as well, various um, software companies and all sorts. So it's, it's been a very varied role and it's taken me around the world too um, at uh, various stages of my life. So it's been great. I've been doing it for 15 years and um, haven't really had a, um, a break from it yet. So it's good in that it 
teaches me the discipline uh, to write. I have to do it. I have to front up every single day and just churn that content out for um, my employers. So it's very good for establishing a habit. And even though it's nonfiction writing, writing your prose is prose. So um, it's taught me an economy of words as well that I think has um, benefited my fiction as well, because I don't like waffle, not one bit. So yeah, you don't get much waffle in a Chris Rosser uh, story. It's really interesting because I came from a sort of a technical writing background in a way as well. I was in cultural heritage for nearly 10 years before I started my fiction writing. And it's, it is interesting. You're right, that discipline of sitting down, having to put out a report within some very strict timelines because you've got a client who's sitting there waiting for it. It's, it's a great motivator to, uh, to get writing and get going. It absolutely is. And I will, I'll make a slight confession here and I'll reveal some of my cards. I looked up your profile on Twitter and I noticed a key word in there that piqued my interest and that's archaeology. And archaeology was my first degree. That's where my, my technical journey began was uh, I studied archaeology and history for uh, four and a half years at, the Mel at Melbourne University. That's amazing. Look at that. I started off doing pure archaeology and then I sort of um, changed my major halfway through and uh, picked up um, ancient and medieval history as well. And that's really what kept me in Melbourne. So I sort of started out in archaeology and then just migrated across to, um, to more classical historical studies. Well, that's really fascinating. I love it. So here we are now, you know, sort yeah. of 15, uh, tw nearly 20 years later and both having migrated through various career paths and onto the path of fiction writing. Absolutely. It's fiction writing, as I said, has always been something that's there. And it, it's funny how for a long time in my youth, I really wanted to do archaeology, but it took me until I was halfway through university to realize what attracted me to archaeology was that great sense of narrative. And the writing was always with me. And I realized, I think a lot of people go through a, uh, something of an identity crisis halfway through uni where they think, you know, is this really what I want? You're smiling there. I can see uh, you, you agree. And that's, that, there was a light bulb moment where I think, you know, the, that need to write, which I've done it for as long as I can remember. And I started to take it seriously when I was about 15. But it was really halfway through university where it became more and more of a burning desire. And that's really where I said, okay, well, honestly, I'll, I will finish out this degree because I'm, I'm not going to change. And I, I love the subject matter. I love, the, uh, I love studying history and archaeology. But I reconciled it about halfway through that I would need to do something else afterwards that was closer to that, that passion of writing. So... Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So it started off there, and then I I migrated into this writer's life in um, professional nonfiction, and most recently into fiction. Were you working on the ideas that became your fiction first novella and your fictional sort of world, your fictional journey, from that moment that you sort of made that decision, or is that something that you've built up to over time as sort of keeping it sort of on the on the edge of uh, of the horizon until you finally took the plunge? It had a long gestation period, I guess, and it slowly, it slowly built up in me. And what's interesting is I was re revising a few old drafts of um, your know, lecture notes, mod, uh, stories, and you know aborted novels that I I started and got so far with. Uh, what was constant though was I worked on the world or you know the the original world I came up with, and what I what I started to notice was I would go through 
my lecture notes afterwards and I realized I was in the, in the margins, I would start doing notes um, as I was picking up something from what the lecturer would say. And I'd write a margin note to say, oh, this has got to go in my world. This is a fantastic idea and, and so on. So that's when I really started drafting and the impetus for that was I wanted to write a, um, a book for my, um, my sister and I wanted to try my hand at writing what was, oh, I didn't even know what the term was back then, but I guess it was a YA, a young adult novel. And uh, it was at that point where I said, right, I, w I want to do a story for her. Um, I want to write a female protagonist for her, something that you know, was fairly lacking in fantasy as far as I was concerned back then. And yeah, I just, I had enough of the, the world done. I had a vague story idea. And that's the point in about 2003, where I started to write my first completed manuscript. That's really interesting to know that you were sort of pulling things from, you know, what you were hearing in the lectures and what you were getting through your studies and that. Is your fantasy world or, or your fantasy worlds in general, they're heavily influenced by sort of real history and, and real historical events? Or do you just take the sort of the seed of those ideas and then spin them out into something that's completely new? Yes, absolutely. What I was studying was directly what I was interested in. And I did my, um, my thesis was on medieval Welsh uh, history. And in particular, I was looking at the career of a particular bard who lived in the, the 1300s and um, early 1400s, uh, 1300s. And my first uh, novel has a um, character in it, and he's actually the, the protagonist in The Weaver's Boy as well, who is a bard. So there was a, a direct correlation between what I was studying uh, my world is very much a facsimile of 10th, 11th century Wales and parts of Europe that I've sort of lifted and, and added to the world. So my fantasy is almost like historical fiction, just with a bit of magic thrown in there. That's the way I, um, I sort of approach it. Was it that love of the world and of that setting that really gave you the drive to make that story? And, uh, you know, obviously, as well, you're saying for your sister, were you trying to really explore that world and that setting through your writing? Or did you have a story that you wanted to tell and realise, well, this is a setting in which that story can be told? It was a bit of both because I was finding, as I was studying academic history and archaeology, it was dry and I was attracted to the narratives behind it, not necessarily just the primary sources. I wanted the stories of the people behind it. So I've, I've always had much more of an interest in, say, social history. I wanted to express what I was studying in a more creative and narrative form. So the world was certainly something I wanted to explore, but it really comes down to, um, as well, uh, just a love of the genre. And I had characters in mind that I wanted to bring to life. And really, it was the three of those things that sort of coalesced into a desire to write uh, what it is that I do write. So would you say that something that sort of exists in your process across novels is that, that almost that triad of the world, the story and the character? Is there one particular one that you start with and then spin out into the others? Or do they sort of each take an equal place on the stage when you're starting out a new project? Back then, when I first started, it would have been the world. And that's what, uh, when I was part of an early writing group, people commented on how rich the world was and how, how much it gave them a sense of time and place. So I was very good at that part of it, building a rich world. Now, though, I've about faced the, the world building is still there and it's still very important. But now I try to write, um, as I've grown older, I try to write much more character driven fiction. So now everything for me always starts with a character. So the world is important, but really 
I write character-driven fiction about what I think are real people with real motivations and vulnerabilities and those sorts of things. So the world is just the sandpit in which to play. It's the actors, it's the characters that, that are the important bit that move people forward, at least to me anyway. So going through Caddick's contract and The Weaver's Boy, what was it about the character that you've got? You say the central character there is a bard living in uh, this you know, 11th century English uh, countryside, I presume. What about that character do you think has really drawn you to tell this story and to continue this story over, over multiple novellas and uh, into the novel? Well, with The Weaver's Boy, I'll, I'll start there because that's what I wrote first. And, and I start... I, I wrote that because I wanted to explore this particular character, Owen, the protagonist, who's an apprentice bard at the stage of this particular story. Uh, he's actually a, a character in um, a forthcoming novel that I've got, a big one that I've been working on for many, many years. The, the same book that started out its life as the book I wrote for my sister. I wanted to explore an event in his life that set the stage for not only considerable political change, but also the great changes that would occur in his life, not only in that particular setting where I started it, but in the, the novel that I'm, um, I'm going to release at some point as well. So I was drawn to his character. It's a coming of age story. And I wanted to explore an episode in his life, really, that facilitated this great change that was coming. Very cool. Was that great change a one of the historical events from that time or was it a, was it a more character character change i'm obviously trying to avoid uh, too many spoilers <laughs> for the yes. novel yeah that i won't divulge too much but he becomes a a mover and shaker in in the history of, of the world and um i i really really wanted to capture that point where it first really started the the point where his character arc starts when I hear you say that the characters, you know, a bard in this medieval type of setting, uh, of my first thoughts, I have to admit, sort of go straight to uh, Dungeons and Dragons and character classes uh, from there. Uh, do you play Dungeons and Dragons, or has that been any sort of inspiration on the novel at all, or is it the strictly historical sense of the of the term bard? It's the historical sense, and I have never played Dungeons and Dragons in my life, and it would probably be a divorceable offence. Um, my wife is no, that's not happening. That's not happening. I'd like to play. I'd be interested to play one day, but no, it's, I'm afraid it's not happening. So it's the bard in the, uh, the Welsh Druidic tradition of, of the word that, that inspired me. So, you know, I take the idea of a bard and just mix it up a bit. So a little bit of a bard, a little bit of a druid and you know, that sort of thing as they existed in Europe and try to make something new out of them. Given that you've got your bard character so closely set to the historical accuracies of your time and of your research, do you find that when you're reading other fiction, other fantasy fiction that has similar sorts of characters in there, is there anything that's consistent in those that you think to yourself, oh, why do they keep putting this in? Or, oh, gee, they always keep getting this particular bit wrong. Yeah, I know. The Bard is a, an archetypical character, I suppose, and they're fun to play with. Yeah, I don't have a problem with playing with, uh, with an archetypical character. Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I hadn't really thought of that before. What annoys me with, with other characters? I have a sense of conflict with history sometimes. I have a, a tension with what I do between fantasy and historical fiction. And when I read historical fiction, I like accuracy. I like consistency and those sorts of things 
when I write fantasy or when I read fantasy, I'm prepared to let things slide a little bit. So I, I just think there can be a little bit of a tension between them, especially when, as I do, I write fantasy that is more on the historical fiction side of things than way out there fantasy, which is not. Uh, I don't know if I explain myself all that carefully there, all, all that clearly there, sorry. But I do like that, the history and the fantasy and trying to not so much please both camps, but give enough of that good historical narrative and enough of the fantastical elements to keep people happy. Yeah, I imagine that when um, you're doing a, a fantasy work that's so if heavily influenced by real history, there is a, a fine line to tread, I guess, between reader expectations and your own sense of how closely you want to follow historical precedent of the time and how much you want to let your creativity sort of take free reign. So it's really interesting to hear how you navigate the, those two. Yeah, it's not an easy thing, but you kind of have to make a choice at some point if you're going to be anal about crossing your um, T's and dotting your I's, etc., and then throwing caution to the wind and saying, right, well, it's fantasy. I can do whatever the hell I want. But I still think even though it is fantasy, there has to be some uh, internal consistency and some, and some logic in there. And that's why I start to err on the side of history if I get um, into that, that unsure territory where I think, okay, well, all right, what do my sources say? How would I, how would I look it up then? And that's, uh, that's tend to be what I do. The good thing about using real historical uh, events as a backing is that for the most part, real history is uh, pretty strictly consistent. So we can uh, be fairly certain we're not going to come up with uh, a major conflict in a magic system or something if we're looking at a historical record, usually. No, that's no, that's absolutely right. And, um, oh, man, it's such rich pickings as well, history. And Game of Thrones is a good example for there, which the core conflict around the Game of Thrones was just lifted from the um, English War of the Roses. So history is just absolutely rich pickings for this sort of thing. Yeah, especially in that time period as well. There is a bit of a romance to it because we've had such a long history of it in the genre as being something that's being romanticised and being explored with and, and toyed with and played with so it is kind of i've noticed a lot of more recent fantasy fiction is kind of tending to swing back a little bit toward the pendulum is coming back a bit more towards sort of historical accuracy and really luxuriating in those sort of details rather than the complete invent from whole cloth and give it the sort of veneer of you know, medieval fantasy as we might have grown up reading in the, you know, the 80s and the early 90s yeah, I certainly think that's the case. Uh, Game of Thrones has really done a lot to change that. Um, I think it's gone and made it fantasy very, tends to be gritty, you know, with a lot of realism in it. And that's cool and all, but it is quite different to the D&D &D Dungeons and Dragons stuff from the 1980s. You don't have your uh, your bard cavorting around too wildly with the uh, the you know, monsters and, and orcs and ogres of your, uh, of your novel? Um, afraid not. No, I've, I've dispensed with the orcs and um, all those things. I've made up a bunch of other um, uh, sentient species, I suppose. Because I use a few tropes, I try to avoid others to give a, a balance, to make it not so much that it's just look like it's written out of the 
the D and D, you know, gaming handbook. Cause I think they, in their books, they've got a standard suite of life forms they can just roll out. So if I do use some tropes of the setting, then there are others that I will absolutely avoid. So I don't do elves. I don't do dwarves. I don't do dragons or anything like that. With the fantasy races, fantasy characters that you do write and put in, are they also sort of based on historical things? Like there's a lot I've read recently, some fiction, you know, really going into fairies and and the realm of fairy, but as a very historical treatment of what people believed and how the superstitions used to run around those creatures. Do you use a sort of a similar thing to inform the fantasy elements of what you write in in that period? Or is it all your own creation injected into that time period and given its flavour just from being from your head into that world? Absolutely. I have picked liberally from uh, Welsh and Irish culture because that's what I'm most familiar with. So a lot of the um, a lot of the creatures that I have been based on my research from um, Irish myth and the Welsh Mabinogi and things like that. The other thing that I do, the other sort of prevailing culture in my world is Polish and Polish and Slavic uh, mythology as well uh, from around that um, period. It's just as rich as the Germanic stuff that we're most familiar with through the the Lord of the Rings and the Dungeons and Dragons canon. I wonder if with uh, with The Witcher, the video game and now the Netflix series becoming so much more popular and into the public imagination, if that's going to change as well and we'll get a lot more I, familiarity with those Polish and Slavic traditions. I think we absolutely will. And I'm a, I'm a fan of the games in particular. I haven't read the books yet. I've got a Ukrainian friend who keeps nagging me to read the books and I mean to, I'm going to. And I also believe too that J.K. Rowling in the Harry Potter books also delved into the um, into that Slavic myth as well. I think the Vila from her books, I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head, but I believe they're from a Slavic tradition too. So absolutely, I think they will go more mainstream and um, and I hope they do. It's a fascinating culture and certainly the Polish and Lithuanian kingdom, that has certainly influenced me a lot too with one of the cultures that I've got in, in my world. So um, yeah, bring it on. I hope the more people who understand this stuff, the better. So would you say then that the hist- obviously the historical elements and the historical influences are very important in your writing would you say that's sort of the thing if you had to pick one thing that you think is your right really representative of your writing and your writing style do you think that would be it was is the historical flavor the historical influence possibly because i do put a lot of research into it and people who have reviewed my book have noted um and i'm quite pleased at this that they do pick up on how rich and detailed the world is. So it is certainly a, um, it is certainly perhaps the dominant flavor. I'm also quite fatalistic in style too. So there is that richness, but there's also the grittiness as well, because I write in a grim dark style or a borderline grim dark style. I'm not that sort of fatalistic that everyone has to die by the end of it, uh, like the ending of Hamlet or anything like that. But there is a dark that, that um, pervades the, um, the stories as well so it's probably those two things it's that historical fever and that sense of fetism and darkness that goes through the stories too wow with that sense of fatalism that sense of dark writing uh that you have would you say that that's something that you're you're building up through those novellas to go into the novel that you're working on now that's going to be the the big release is has that all been in service of building up to what this next book is going to be? 
partly it's partly my own psychology as well and it's also partly to do with the um the subject matter as well there's if you read celtic myth especially in the um in their original sources there is a great and this probably isn't just celtic myth actually it's it's probably a theme throughout many myths of um of an indo-european flavor and i can't speak for those outside of that because that's just what i've studied but there is a general sense of pessimism through Celtic myth. And I think I've seen that too with some Greek myth. And even as far back as the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of man is mortal in it. And it's just something that's always stuck with me. So yes, it's partly narrative driven, but it, it's partly from within me. And it's partly from um, the source material that I've studied from cultures from around the world. Interesting you mentioned the Epic of Gilgamesh. I remember too sitting down in uni and reading through that and getting getting the study uh, of that going as well. And you're right, there is a real, that the mortality angle, which does crop up a lot in a lot of uh, historical stories, is really hammered down with the futility of man sort of, uh, sort of thing going through there. It's an interesting flavour to add to, uh, to one's writing. Yeah, it absolutely is. But it, it's always stuck with me. And I thought, wow, the Epic of Gilgamesh is, is just, it, it's our oldest epic myth that survives. And my goodness, it's got everything in it. And it still resonates today, even after thousands of years. And that's one of the things that struck me and the great sense of humility that, you know, humanity is not going to last. Civilization doesn't last. And I, I, I find it poignant that even the very first myth makers and the first epic fantasy writers that uh, survive to this day still grapple with the sorts of issues that we do. And um, that's always spoken to me. And I've seen that recurring in, the, in, in mythology throughout at least Western civilization. As, as I said, I'm not as versed in, um, in other mythology as well but in the celtic myth there's certainly that element of fatalism and uh and futility of um of mankind so yes that's probably where I've, I've most got it from to be honest i think as students of history it is something that you do become very aware of i've had some chats with some other authors as well who see the same surprise sometimes when you know when i when i'm asked what's my reason for writing and sort of you know it's to try to put a bit of a stamp uh, on the world before the uh, inevitable rolling of history erases every single one of my accomplishments from history and be like, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, a, it's something you are sort of keenly aware of, I guess, when, uh, uh, when you've uh, spent your life studying uh, the people of the past. That's right. I mean, we certainly make the same mistakes time and time again. And as well, writing is also very therapeutic and I turn to it because sometimes I just feel, oh, my goodness, how can I face the world? And I do so by pouring that despair I get sometimes into, um, into a work of fiction to try and deal with it. So, yes, it's very much driven by the, um, by the sense that we just keep making those same mistakes over and over again. So for your protagonist, as he runs into the third story of the cycle you've uh, made for them, do you feel like you're setting up a whole bunch of mistakes for them to remake over again? Absolutely. Um, I'm a bit of a sadist in that regard. So he's, um, he's going to experience a lot of pain. He's going to not only experience pain, he's going to cause pain to others and he's going to make mistakes. He's very much a flawed 
human being. Uh, aren't we all? Indeed. With, um, with going into that, is there, again, not trying to throw too many spoilers out there, but with the upcoming uh, story that you're working on now, is there one part of it or one element of it that you're really, that's really driving you forward and that's really exciting you about uh, about the story as you're writing it? Is it one of those character moments that the protagonist is steering towards or is it a particular a particular theme that uh, that you wanted to get across, one of those that we've been talking about or, or a, a different one? Is there something, what's, what's the one sort of hook about this, uh, the work you're doing now that you're, it's really exciting you. It's probably not one thing. And so I'll speak to the, the third book. It's called The Prince's Bastard. And it's the first time I've ventured into an ensemble cast. And this really worried me at first because I was afraid I wouldn't have a clear protagonist and I would just stuff things up and, you know, there, there wouldn't be a clear core narrative conflict to find. But I think that I've pulled it off and I am um, quite happy with how it's uh, worked out. And I've got four very strong characters, all with very solid motivations and conflicts. I'm also particularly proud of my character, Kerian, who's strong and independent. And in my youth, I really struggled with writing female characters, but I think it's really starting to turn into a strength of mine. So those two things, it's, I, I'm really proud of the characters in this. And I think that I've done it in such a way that I haven't stuffed up, even though I've got a lot of strong characters competing for um, ink on the page. Are the first two in the series just solely told from the Bard's perspective? Uh, no, the Caddox contract is um, set a little bit before that. So that is from the perspective of Caddox, who is a veteran of a crusade, and he's returning home, and he's not sure what um, he's returning home to. Set that as well. He sort of did something very stupid and made a deal with a dark power, and he's got to live with that as well. But that really sets up the um, the story where the um, the Bard's apprentice, Owen, um, comes across the the setting and um, establishes some of that. And I probably shouldn't have written it, but it was one of those things where the muse just jumped up and said, no, you've got to write a story about this man first uh, before you can move on. So I did that. And yes, in The Weaver's Boy, where the central protagonist is Owen, apart from one scene, it is all in his his POV, his point of view. And where can we get those books then? You say they're available through your website? Uh, well, the web- website's a good place to start, but the, um, I've gone wide. So my books are available just about everywhere that uh, you can find ebooks sold. So I'm in Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, and Kobo. They're the main ones I sell through. And a couple of Australian libraries have also picked up my books as well. So if you're a member of your local library, you can also either request that they purchase the book or you may even find it already there, especially with a couple of libraries across Melbourne. It's in um, Maroondah and uh, Whitehorse and Bayside and where St. Albans is. So yes, you can get it um, there, but if you, um, if you remember your local library, you can certainly toddle along and uh, request it um, through their app, providing they use the Overdrive app or the overdrive service to um, for the, the digital books. Fantastic. So you heard that uh, listeners go out and to your local library and start requesting. Fabulous. I much prefer that, to be honest, than, um, than Kindle Unlimited. Uh, I'd much rather support and people support their local libraries than, um, than just, you know, popping up Jeff Bezos's back pocket all the time. 
<laughs> Fair enough too. So when's the Prince's Bastard going to be hitting shelves, both digital or uh, or on the actual storefront? I was hoping September, but I'm probably going to slip into um, into October. So you must be pretty much pretty much done with it by now, yeah. Well, almost. Uh, the first draft is done. I need to um, revise, and I'm I'm after I after I finished with my archaeology degree, I did a master's in editing. So I'm actually much better at the revision and editing part than I am at the um, the drafting bit. So it is just mellowing at the moment. And then once I've got enough time with it, I'll go in and revise it. And then, then I'll hand it off to um, a couple of beta readers and my, um, the professional editor that I use. And at that point, so based on the last two books, that process usually takes about two to three months uh, in total. So I've already got the cover for it because the, the guy who um, created my first two covers, he created the entire series for me. So um, it's all, yeah, that from that part, the production side is actually quite quick. The editing side is, um, is not too bad as well. So that's, I'm probably thinking October based on where it's sort of sitting now. Wow. We're definitely looking forward to that then. We'll, uh, everybody run out and get copies of the Weaver's Boy and Caddick's contract before October then. Yes. Hopefully it's uh, yeah, a good read out of that. I'm also, I've started drafting the fourth one or the, the next one in the series as well. And I'm about halfway through the first draft of that. So I'd love a quick release on that. I'd love it out before the end of the year, but I'm not so sure yet with that one. So um, yeah, there's only so much hours in my day. Fair enough too. How long do you envision the entire series running? The books that I've written now are under the title, The Lords of Skanehold as the series but they will be part of a larger body of work, the Weaver Saga. And at the moment, I've got about, I've got about eight books planned, um, but it starts to get murkier the sort of further out I go. So what I don't want to do, I'm not going to flog a dead horse. When I decide the stories are done, I'll stop and I'll move on to something else. But uh, at the moment, I've got lots of ideas and um, a rather large world to explore. So even if I finish up this current thread, I may just jump to another location and start exploring some new characters and new stories. That's a fascinating idea too, especially when you're mixing up, putting out novel length and novella length works. It seems like a really good opportunity. You've built the world, you've got all the pieces in place and being able to run off and play with different areas of that, of that world sounds like something that would be really rewarding to do. I hope so. And um, as you said, I've put the hard yards into constructing the world. So um, absolutely, you know, it's got a lot of legs. The, um, there's certainly a lot of scope for different stories and what have you. But as I said, I don't want to bore people with the same old characters and the same old stories. So I will, um, yeah, there's lots of stuff to explore. So, um, and it keeps me interested as well. Because I, I don't want to do anything that just bores me. Otherwise, um, you know, why would I do it? I think, as you're saying too, about the realism and the dark, um, the dark sort of tint to the works, setting away from sort of the main cast every now and again really gives you a lot more scope too. Like you get rid of any uh, feeling of sort of plot armor that the characters might have, and the reader really doesn't know what could happen to these people by the end of the tale. So I can see why that's really be interesting to to step away and really sort of tease out an exploration of, of those elements in a different sort of way. 
There is too, and it also gives me the scope to try different styles as well, which is something I've um, I've thought of before. And I don't have to just move in time, uh, sorry, in space. I could also move in time as well. So there's certainly a lot of scope um, to change things and change the world. I like the idea of a living, evolving world and not something that is static and fixed in one particular period of time. So yeah, there's as I said, there's there's lots of potential and lots to um and lots to explore the only thing i lack is time and on that note i think i might let you get some time back and leave you for the evening and say thank you very much for uh for coming on and telling us a bit about your about your work and about your writing process it's been really fantastic to sort of take a dive in and uh learn a bit about it thank you very much terry it's been an absolute pleasure wonderful wonderful to be a guest on your show and just one last time, do you want to let us know where we can find you online and where we can get a copy of those books? The best place to find me is at my website. That's chrisrosser.net. And there you can sign up to my mailing list if you want all the news or just follow along in my blog. I write a lot of um, reviews and articles and all sorts of stuff, uh, not just about my writing, but anything that takes my fancy. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at C. Rosser author. Um, you can probably find me on Facebook and Instagram, but I don't use those platforms particularly much. Twitter is where I'm most active. Well, thank you again so much, Chris, and look forward to seeing you uh, on Twitter and catching up with the novel when it's out. I've got some re catch up reading to do before then. Thank you. All the best. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And please don't hesitate to let your friends know about terrytalksfiction.com and the stories they can find there. I look forward to speaking with you all again soon. Mm -hmm.